section twenty two of curiosities of literature volume three this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. curiosities of literature volume three by isaac disraeli of palaces built by ministers our ministers and court favourites as well as those on the continent practised a very impolitical custom and one likely to be repeated although it has never failed to cast a popular odium on their names exciting even the envy of their equals in the erection of palaces for themselves which outvied those of their sovereign and which to the eyes of the populace appeared as a perpetual and insolent exhibition of what they deemed the ill-earned wages of peculation oppression and court favour we discover the seduction of this passion for ostentation this haughty sense of their power and this self-idolatry even among the most prudent and the wisest of our ministers and not one but lived to lament over this vain act of imprudence to these ministers the noble simplicity of pitt will ever form an admirable contrast while his personal character as a statesman descends to posterity unstained by calumny the houses of cardinal wolsey appear to have exceeded the palaces of the sovereign in magnificence and potent as he was in all the pride of pomp the great cardinal found rabid envy pursuing him so close at his heels that he relinquished one palace after the other and gave up as gifts to the monarch what in all his overgrown greatness he trembled to retain for himself the state satire of that day was often pointed at this very circumstance as appears in skelton's why come ye not to court and roy's read me and be not wroth footnote skelton's satire is accessible to the reader in the rev alexander dice's edition of the poet's works roy's poem was printed abroad about fifteen twenty five and is of extreme rarity as the cardinal spared no labour and expense to purchase and destroy all the copies a second edition was printed at wessel in fifteen forty six its author who had been a friar was ultimately burned in portugal for heresy End of footnote. skelton's railing rhymes leave their bitter teeth in his purple pride and the style of both these satirists if we use our own orthography shows how little the language of the common people has varied during three centuries set up a wretch on high in a throne triumphantly make him a great state and he will play checkmate with royal majesty the king's court should have the excellence but hampton court hath the preeminence and york place footnote the palace of wolsey as archbishop of york which he had furnished in the most sumptuous manner after his disgrace it became a royal residence under the name of whitehall 
note in dice's edition of skelton's works End of footnote. with my lord's grace to whose magnificence is all the confluence suits and supplications embassies of all nations roy in contemplating the palace is maliciously reminded of the butcher's lad and only gives plain sense in plain words hath the cardinal any gay mansion great palaces without comparison most glorious of outward sight and within decked point device footnote point device a term explained by mr deuce he thinks that it is borrowed from the labours of the needle as we have point lace so point device that is point a stitch and device devised or invented applied to describe anything uncommonly exact or worked with the nicety and precision of stitches made or devised by the needle illustrations of shakespeare one ninety three but mr gifford has since observed that the origin of the expression is perhaps yet to be sought for he derives it from a mathematical phrase a point divisé or a given point and hence exact correct etc ben jonson volume four one seventy see for various examples mr nares's glossary article point device End of footnote more like unto a paradise than an earthly habitation he cometh then of some noble stock his father could match a bullock a butcher by his occupation whatever we may now think of the structure and the low apartments of wolsey's palace it is described not only in his own times but much later as of unparalleled magnificence and indeed cavendish's narrative of the cardinal's entertainment of the french ambassadors gives an idea of the ministerial prelate's imperial establishment very puzzling to the comprehension of a modern inspector six hundred persons i think were banqueted and slept in an abode which appears to us so mean but which stowe calls so stately a palace to avoid the odium of living in this splendid edifice wolsey presented it to the king who in recompense suffered the cardinal occasionally to inhabit this wonder of england in the character of keeper of the king's palace so that wolsey only dared to live in his own palace by a subterfuge this perhaps was a tribute which ministerial haughtiness paid to popular feeling or to the jealousy of a royal master i have elsewhere shown the extraordinary elegance and prodigality of expenditure of buckingham's residences they were such as to have extorted the wonder even of bassompierre and unquestionably excited the indignation of those who lived in a poor court while our gay and thoughtless minister alone could indulge in the wanton profusion but wolsey and buckingham were ambitious and adventurous they rose and shone the comets of the political horizon of europe the roman tiara still haunted the imagination of the cardinal and the egotistic pride of having outrivalled richelieu and olivares the nominal ministers but the real sovereigns of europe kindled the buoyant spirits of the gay 
the gallant and the splendid villiers but what folly of the wise must account for the conduct of the profound clarendon and the sensible sir robert walpole who like the other two ministers equally became the victims of this imprudent passion for the ostentatious pomp of a palace this magnificence looked like the vaunt of insolence in the eyes of the people and covered the ministers with a popular odium clarendon house is now only to be viewed in a print but its story remains to be told it was built on the site of grafton street and when afterwards purchased by monk the duke of albemarle he left his title to that well-known street it was an edifice of considerable extent and grandeur clarendon reproaches himself in his life for his weakness and vanity in the vast expense incurred in this building which he acknowledges had more contributed to that gust of envy that had so violently shaken him than any misdemeanour that he was thought to have been guilty of it ruined his estate but he had been encouraged to it by the royal grant of the land by that passion for building to which he owns he was naturally too much inclined and perhaps by other circumstances among which was the opportunity of purchasing the stones which had been designed for the rebuilding of st paul's but the envy it drew on him and the excess of the architect's proposed expense had made his life very uneasy and near insupportable the truth is that when this palace was finished it was imputed to him as a state crime all the evils in the nation which were then numerous pestilence conflagration war and defeats were discovered to be in some way connected with clarendon house or as it was popularly called either dunkirk house or tangier hall from a notion that it had been erected with the golden bribery which the chancellor had received for the sale of dunkirk and tangiers footnote burnet says others called it holland house because he was believed to be no friend to the war so it was given out that he had money from the dutch End of footnote he was reproached with having profaned the sacred stones dedicated to the use of the church the great but unfortunate master of this palace who from a private lawyer had raised himself by alliance even to royalty the father-in-law of the duke of york it was maliciously suggested had persuaded charles the second to marry the infanta of portugal knowing but how clarendon obtained the knowledge his enemies have not revealed that the portuguese princess was not likely to raise any obstacle to the inheritance of his own daughter to the throne at the restoration among other enemies clarendon found that the royalists were none of the least active he was reproached by them for preferring those who had been the cause of their late troubles the same reproach was incurred on the restoration of the bourbons it is perhaps more political to maintain active men who have obtained power than to reinstate inferior talents who at least have not their popularity this is one of the parallel cases which so frequently strike us 
in exploring political history and the ultras of louis the eighteenth were only the royalists of charles the second there was a strong popular delusion carried on by the wits and the misses who formed the court of charles the second that the government was as much shared by the hydes as the stuarts we have in the state poems an unsparing lampoon entitled clarendon's housewarming but a satire yielding nothing to it in severity i have discovered in manuscript and it is also remarkable for turning chiefly on a pun of the family name of the earl of clarendon the witty and malicious rhymer after making charles the second demand the great seal and resolve to be his own chancellor proceeds reflecting on the great political victim lo his whole ambition already divides the sceptre between the stuarts and the hydes behold in the depth of our plague and wars he built him a palace outbraves the stars which house we dunkirk he clarendon names looks down with shame upon st james but tis not his golden globe that will save him being less than the custom-house farmers gave him his chapel for consecration calls whose sacrilege plundered the stones from paul's when queen dido landed she bought as much ground as the hide of a lusty fat bull would surround but when the said hide was cut into thongs a city and kingdom to hide belongs so here in court church and country far and wide here's naught to be seen but hide 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 of old and where law the kingdom divides twas our hides of land tis now land of hides clarendon house was a palace which had been raised with at least as much fondness as pride and evelyn tells us that the garden was planned by himself and his lordship but the cost as usual trebled the calculation and the noble master grieved in silence amidst this splendid pile of architecture Footnote at the gateway of the three kings inn near dover street in piccadilly are two pilasters with corinthian capitals which belong to clarendon house and are perhaps the only remains of that edifice End of footnote. even when in his exile the sale was proposed to pay his debts and secure some provision for his younger children he honestly tells us that he remained so infatuated with the delight he had enjoyed that though he was deprived of it he hearkened very unwillingly to the advice in sixteen eighty three clarendon house met its fate and was abandoned to the brokers who had purchased it for its materials and affecting circumstances recorded by evelyn on this occasion in returning to town with the earl of clarendon the son of the great earl in passing by the glorious palace his father built but a few years before which they were now demolishing being sold to certain undertakers footnote an old term for contractors evelyn tells us they were certain rich bankers and mechanics who gave for it and the ground about it thirty-five thousand pounds 
they built streets and houses on the site to their great profit the ground comprising twenty-four acres of land End of footnote. i turned my head to the contrary way till the coach was gone past by lest i might minister occasion of speaking of it which must needs have grieved him that in so short a time this pomp was fallen a feeling of infinite delicacy so perfectly characteristic of evelyn and now to bring down this subject to time still nearer we find that sir robert walpole had placed himself exactly in the situation of the great minister we have noticed we have his confession to his brother lord walpole and to his friend sir john hind cotton the historian of this minister observes that his magnificent building at houghton drew on him great obloquy on seeing his brother's house at walterton sir robert expressed his wishes that he had contented himself with a similar structure in the reign of anne sir robert sitting by sir john hind cotton alluding to a sumptuous house which was then building by harley observed that to construct a great house was a high act of imprudence in any minister it was a long time after when he had become prime minister that he forgot the whole result of the present article and pulled down his family mansion at houghton to build its magnificent edifice it was then sir john hin cotton reminded him of the reflection which he had made some years ago the reply of sir robert is remarkable your recollection is too late i wish you had reminded me of it before i began building for then it might have been of service to me the statesman and politician then are susceptible of all the seduction of ostentation and the pride of pomp who would have credited it but bewildered with power in the magnificence and magnitude of the edifices which their colossal greatness inhabits they seem to contemplate on its image sir francis walsingham died and left nothing to pay his debts as appears by a curious fact noticed in the anonymous life of sir philip sidney prefixed to the arcadia and evidently written by one acquainted with the family history of his friend and hero the chivalric sidney though sought after by court beauties solicited the hand of the daughter of walsingham although as it appears she could have had no other portion than her own virtues and her father's name and herein observes our anonymous biographer he was exemplary to all gentlemen not to carry their love in their purses on this he notices this secret history of walsingham this is that sir francis who impoverished himself to enrich the state and indeed made england his heir and was so far from building up a fortune by the benefit of his place that he demolished that fine estate left him by his ancestors to purchase dear intelligence from all parts of christendom he had a key to unlock the pope's cabinet and as if master of some invisible whispering-place all the secrets of christian princes met at his closet wonder not then if he bequeathed no great wealth to his daughter being privately interred in the choir of paul's as much indebted to his creditors though not so much as our nation is indebted to his memory 
some curious inquirer may afford us a catalogue of great ministers of state who have voluntarily declined the augmentation of their private fortune while they devoted their days to the noble pursuits of patriotic glory the labour of this research will be great and the volume small End of section twenty two